Thanks, brother. Well, uh, welcome. My name is Trev, and uh, I'm your pastor at this point, one of them anyways. Now we have two officially. Um, Elroy and Lynn are uh, apprenticing with us, but really they're, they're on the same team as us, so we don't look at them as apprentices as much as family. Uh, so thanks, brother, for that. Uh, we're in a series on First Peter, as Elroy had said, and this series has in some ways been quite prophetic uh, because as we have talked about testing, it seems like there's a significant number of tests that seem to be coming our way, personally and corporately. I don't know if you've experienced that, and I'm starting to wonder if Jesus doesn't actually plan this out. I know we do, but I'm starting to wonder if Jesus isn't just totally at work in the way that he draws us to particular texts at particular times because he has things that he wants to teach us and show us. Um, And so I'm grateful and thankful for that, but I would... I would ask, uh, just again, I, I always do this because I feel like I would like to pray to Jesus and ask him for help. So if it's all right for you, we're going to double up here and pray twice uh, for my words and for the word of God. Jesus, would you be with us now um, as we take the time to hear from your word? And in some ways we're asking a ridiculous thing, which is can you speak deeply and powerfully through a human being? We shouldn't actually get this opportunity, but we do. And so I pray, Jesus, that today people will not hear me, but they will hear you. And that it will be very obvious to people that Trevor's not just speaking. It's the Holy Spirit of God speaking through Trevor. And so I pray for that, Jesus, because we need your help. This is an ancient text. And we have difficulty applying it. And it's a difficult text, not just ancient, but it's difficult. And so, Jesus, we need your help to sort our brains out. So would you help clear our minds this morning that we can hear carefully from you? And again, as I always ask, Jesus, would you help us not just to hear your words, but be able to have the conviction that comes from your spirit to obey the words? That if, Jesus, there are those who have never proclaimed publicly their love for you, that they would simply feel the open opportunity to do, to do so this morning through baptism. So, Jesus, would you, would you do these things really for your glory? Um, and it's, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for the text uh, this week, um, I, ran into, I, I read a number of, of commentaries and scholars on the subject, people have spent years and years with the entire book of, of First Peter, entire lifetimes actually. That's usually what makes a good commentary. Someone who's studied this in depth, taught it in depth, tried to live it out in depth for a number of years, and then generally they get uh, asked to write a commentary. And there was like four different views of the last part of our text this morning that no one can seem to completely agree on which tells me not that Scripture is wrong, but that it is complex and requires the Holy Spirit of God to sort it out. So I'm going to do my best this morning to do that. Um, And uh, it it is a particularly interesting text because of the way Peter uh, I guess says it. Not what he means, but even the way he says it. And uh, anyways, let's, let's get into the text. Just to bring you up to speed, if you're brand new, uh, we want to welcome you. We think that you can still uh, hear from God and you can still get stuff out of the message if you haven't been. Uh, But we're in a series called Tested. And that's because this book is actually written to a number of Christians in an area uh, that the author, Peter, has never met. He's never been there. He's kind of, he was located in Jerusalem and uh, he kind of stuck around Jerusalem. It was his hometown, so he stayed close by. Not quite his hometown, but very close to his hometown, his home city. And so he stayed there, but he he heard of what was happening in in basically the Asian part uh, of the known world at the time. So it would have been like at the edges of the world. They would have thought of the world as flat, so it literally was on the edge of the world. Uh, And he was writing to them because he felt they needed to hear that whenever they faced significant testing in their life, they needed to know that that testing was not actually contrary to what God was doing in their life, but it was actually a part of 
their life. It was the very thing that God wanted to do. I think it's such a good name for us because we live in a culture that doesn't particularly understand suffering very well. Whenever we face suffering in our lives, we are very prone to do one thing. We think we're out of God's will. We think we're not doing what God has asked us to do. That's how we're prone to think. That's because we, I'm reading a book uh, by Tim Keller on this very subject, and he says, we as Western culture have done a horrible job at prepping people for a worldview that deals with suffering. We're one of the only cultures that can't seem to understand that suffering is actually just a normal part of everyone's life. And all you have to do is go cross-cultural to what we would maybe call, which sounds really derogatory to me, but a third world country. And just experience life there. And many of them would say that suffering is just kind of part of life. It's not isolated from, from what God does. It's actually one of the ways in which God works. But we as Western culture have a hard time getting our mind around this. So a book like First Peter doesn't really grab us very well because it talks to a number of Christians who essentially are, are almost being killed for, some of them are being killed for their faith. Most of you this morning were not terrified that the RCMP were going to knock on your door and ask you what you believed and treat you accordingly. Was there anyone like that this morning? No, we don't live in that culture. And so it's hard for us to get our minds around this idea of of facing injustice, particularly for our faith. We honestly think suffering is having to wait in the parking lot at Chinook Mall in the Christmas time. Right? And for some of us, that's the bulk of our prayer life, right? Pray that I get a spot in Chinook Mall. We were just saying, this year we're going to ride the sea train because it's kind of disastrous. But be hard-pressed to call it suffering, wouldn't it? Many of us think suffering is just a job that I don't fully enjoy. But honestly, that's not really suffering. That's just a job we don't enjoy. Suffering like these believers would have experienced is, if you don't, Give up your faith in Jesus Christ. Your life is on the line. That's the suffering that's going on in the text. And so what what does Peter then do? He speaks very carefully and, and pointedly to how they should act in spite of that suffering. So we're not talking kind of this flippant activity of people toward, you know, like, well, you know, you should all get along. He's talking to people that literally, day after day, they don't know whether they're going to live. And this is what he says, finally, all of you. Now, as we kind of introduce this, we have to just talk about uh, the fact that we have just come out of of a number of texts that have had specific um, information to specific types of people, specific applications. And so uh, Pete delivered a, a message a couple of weeks ago that talked a lot about facing kind of the injustice or facing um, situations where employers were basically, they weren't good bosses or civic authorities that weren't really good civic authorities and submitting to them. And then uh, two, two weeks ago, I guess, or three weeks ago, I talked about wives submitting to not-Christian husbands. And then last week, we talked about husbands loving their wives. And so there was these very specific places in which Peter was applying the gospel. And some of you were trying to skate on that. You were like, well, I'm not in any of those categories um, because I'm unemployed, single, and, you know, better than the rest of you. So I'm outside of this scope. But today, even though we do have to do context, what Peter says is, finally, all of you, there's not a single person this doesn't apply to. Finally, all of you. And so we ask this first question, um, what Peter is trying to get at is, when you're faced with all of these kind of tests, how will you love? How will you love? The difficulty is not loving in a context where it's easy to love. Right? I find it, it's easy to be a Saskatchewan Rough Rider fan in this city because you find an, a crazy amount, an annoying amount of other fans like you. What's impressive is if you're a Hamilton Tiger Cats fan who goes and cheers, and, that, that's, that's suffering, okay? That's injustice. But when you're faced with that, what, how do you love? Because that's when you find that you love. 
And so what does Peter say? Finally, all of you, here's what you should do. Five kind of characteristics of love. What I love about this is that none of these characteristics are individual characteristics. We live in such a society that all we think is my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But let me state it very clearly. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not personal. It's actually in the context of community. Always. The one another's. All you have to do is read your scripture and you will find that the Bible is filled with one another's. Do you know who he's talking about when the Bible says one another? One another. It's not rocket science. 90% of the time in scripture that when you is being said, it means you, not you. And we hear that. When we hear we, we hear we individual. But... The, the sense of Scripture is that it's we as a body. So he says, finally, all of you. Makes it crystal clear. Finally, you. You. All of you. Y'all. Finally, y'all. As you face your tests, how will you respond? Firstly, he says, have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. What does this mean? This does not mean uniformity. We get those two mixed up. Unity and uniformity get mixed up all the time, right? Some people think unity is everyone likes arcade fire and wears plaid. That's not unity. That's uniformity, okay? It's also known as hipster heaven, okay? Unity is I'm very different than you, but we're on the same page when it comes to our focused goal. That's why if you love Jesus, you belong at Urban Grace. You don't have to be old. You don't have to be young. You don't have to be hip. You don't have to be unhip. You don't have to roll up your pants. You don't have to leave them baggy. That's, that's personality characteristic. Unity is we are all here to see people meet Jesus Christ. That's it. And if that is your goal, then you and I can have unity of mind. And you can be a different ethnicity from me. You can dress differently. You can have a different life phase than I am. You can work different. You can even like a different football team. And we can have unity of mind. And this is what Peter is talking about. When tests come our way, will we respond with a unity of mind, remembering always that it's not that important as to whether I find people that are like me or that I'm comfortable around. It's much more important to have people that have the the goal of people meeting Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. That's what Peter says. That's an act of love. You know, this happens in my family all the time. I don't know if you know this, but I play for Team Estrogen. Okay? There are three girls in my family. Okay? I call it Team Estrogen. That's an affectionate name. They all love it, right? And they are Team Estrogen. Okay? We have unity. I'm not into ponies or princesses. But my family is, and I have unity of mind because we want to be a good family. And they understand that. I understand that. I listen to princess stories, and they watch football with me. But we don't, we aren't, we have a unity of mind. Because we all understand that our family's ultimate goal is about glorifying Jesus Christ. Not about pink or football. And this is all Peter is asking. He says, this is an act of love. And some of you need to repent because your attitude towards your fellow church is like, I just don't have people my age, my phase of life, my work. I say, please, please, please remember, that's a far secondary matter. And that's not even important in having unity. It's not even important. Peter never once says you should all like five hymns and a message. He just says, have unity of mind. Secondly, he says, have sympathy. This means, um, I love that it says, have sympathy, not just like listen to people. The, the word sympathy gives this, um, this sense that it's, you share your emotions. Have you ever talked to someone and they're listening to you, but they're not sharing any emotions with you? 
Now, this was, this was really, I, I saw this kind of um, really obviously when I used to watch a lot of Seinfeld. Okay? And it was very typical for Jerry Seinfeld to kind of have his hands in his pockets. And when someone said something like, my parents died, or I broke up with my girlfriend, he'd be like, oh, that's a shame. Like, no emotion. Right? No sympathy. He, he listened, but he, had, he didn't share any of him, his emotions. And Peter says, one of your acts of love together as a community, one of your responses is that you share your emotions with people. That means when someone is hurt, it actually hurts you. See, this is why it's difficult for us to do this, right? We don't want to be hurt. And so we shield ourselves and we, we, we listen, sure, but we don't share any of our emotions. And I love that Peter's like, this is one of those great acts of love. Share your emotions with one another. When someone's devastated by something, you should have to fight back the tears with them. That's what that means. It should be difficult for you to watch something without sharing somehow that emotion. And I just, I mean, like I said, we're, we're going to watch, some of us are going to watch a game this afternoon where people express more emotions about a game than they do about their church. That should not be, friends. Those are wasted emotions in my mind. And I'm a football fan. Peter says one of your acts of love is to share your emotions. Each one of these has in it some image of Jesus. And so the first one, I forgot to say this, but the first one in unity of mind is, is how do you remember and how do you have a unity of mind amongst your church family? Just remember how many people Jesus saves. Think how many he has unity of mind. Like you think we have diversity here. If you could just see the church, like from overhead cam sort of view, you could see the church all over the world. You'd be surprised how diverse it is. You'd be like, what? Those people love Jesus too? What? Those people love Jesus just like me? Most people love Jesus better than me. You'd be able to see that this is who Jesus is. He does not require you to like certain colors or certain types of music or even certain styles of how to worship. What he requires is that you all worship him. That's it. With sympathy, the Bible actually says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That means that your Jesus actually shares his emotions with you. When you pray to him and you say, Jesus, I know this seems ridiculous, but I'm having a difficult time with this. He says, I'm sorry. I know how that feels. I love that about Jesus. That he is not cold-hearted listening, but he provides sympathy. Thirdly, have brotherly love. This could be brotherly, sisterly love. I like the words family because it captures it for us a little bit uh, crisper. Okay, the brotherly love isn't kind of the you know like you know kind of a growling brotherly love like you know fist bump, but I'm actually afraid to hug you. That that's not the brotherly love we're talking about. We're talking about family love here. A love that it's family love because family love isn't the convenient love, is it? For those of you who have families or have been part of families, how many times have you done something just because that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mom, that's my dad? That's what we do. Right? Dad says, I need help moving. You say, that's what we do. I've never found that family love comes at real convenient times. Has anyone found that? Has anyone found that kind of family love is easy to schedule? It's not easy to schedule. It's very difficult to schedule. Because family love is, I'm really busy, but my child comes home from school and someone's called her a name or said a, a word to her that devastates her. I don't compartmentalize that and say, well, hon, you know what? You know, on Thursdays, I, really, I deal with this. The truth is, she would find somebody else to listen to her. So she, they're, they're too young to understand that this is just how families work. But friends, I think we need that attitude as a church. That when it comes to love, you just have to expect that it's going to be really, really inconvenient. That there will be times when you're like, oh, shoot. 
I had something planned for that day. I had something planned for that hour. I had something to do. I had people to see. I had myself to take care of. And it's just not going to be convenient. That's why Peter says, one of your acts of love is family love. The love that is like a family. Jesus is like this. Did you know that? Jesus said, I call you my brothers and my sisters. He didn't just say, I saved you from a distance. I'm sovereign over you. He said, you are my brothers and my sisters. Get over here. That's your Savior. He doesn't save you when it's most convenient. He saves you because you need saving. He doesn't listen to your prayers between 9 and 5 because... Quite honestly, he gets annoyed if he has to go any further over that. He listens all the time. He doesn't, he doesn't carefully plan your life out just when it counts. He does it all the time. Because he calls us brothers and sisters. Sisters and brothers. And Peter says, have that mind among you. Brotherly love. Fourthly, and I put these together because I I think they they do come together. Tender hearts and humble minds. I love this tender hearts. I was thinking about this word tender. We don't use this very often, the word tender. Who uses the word tender? But we use it like when when we're cooking or something, right? We we take a, a rough, tough piece of meat and we what? We tenderize it. What does that mean? A lot of things. First of all, means we actually eat it because it's palatable. But I think there's a part of even with, with tenderizing that you bring out flavors that just weren't there before if you tenderize it. Have you noticed that? There's just something there that's, that, that's more about just the flavor of it rather than just meat. If you just want to get meat in you, I'm sure you can find some sort of a protein shake that just gets the same kind of protein. But that's not what tenderized meat is. Tenderized meat is for enjoying. And I love this image of of the the love that we should show among ourselves being tender. Because how often have you been in a discussion or probably more or less an argument or a disagreement with someone where you've actually thought, you know, it wasn't what you said, it was how you said it. Anyone ever say that? You're like, actually, I have no problem with what you said. I just have a major problem with how you said it. And here's why Peter says, tender hearts. He's trying to guard against this abrasive truth. You know, some people are like, well, I just tell them the truth. And you're like, but do you have to tell them in that way? Can't you find a tender way to say you're out of line? You don't know what you're talking about. There are ways that we can act towards one another that even in conflict we can respond tenderly. But I don't think that we can do that unless we have humble minds. Because we're obviously not tender because we think it doesn't matter what I say, that needs to be said, and it needs to be said in the way that I would like it to be said. Did you know that Jesus talks to you tenderly? Some of you he's saving, but you don't even know it. That's how tender he is. He is drawing you in to being saved by the King of Kings and you don't even realize it yet. That's how slow and tender he is with you. How humble is that? That the creator of the universe could save you in an instant or judge you in an instant, but he doesn't. He tenderly, humbly draws you in in a place that you can hear the gospel with friends and community so that you can just feel like you've almost discovered it yourself. That's how tender and humble your Savior is. And all Jesus, all Peter says is, just have that mind among you. You'd be surprised what this does. You think about all these. Who wants to be part of a church like that, that's filled full of people like that? Anyone? Okay, only half of you. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll have another church for the other half of you at some point. I'm kidding. We all want that. We all want that. But the question isn't, how can those other people be like that? Take now the responsibility yourself. How can I be one of these people? 
that has unity of mind, that has sympathy for people, that has brotherly love, family love, that has a tender heart and hum mind. And so that's, that's the question to my first point today is, what's your response of love? Secondly, we see in the text, and again, this is complicated, um, and I feel in some ways like this three separate sermons, and there was a point in my uh, message that I was just wanting to split it up because there's so much content, and so if it feels like it's disjointed, I think the text is a little disjointed that way, so hang in there with me. But the second part is that, that Peter then kind of moves into, as, as every good Bible writer does, he moves into this idea of, let's look how Jesus responded to the injustice. So we have these kind of church tests, and then we have like, what's going to be your, my, our, y'all's response when we face injustice? And again, I'm not talking about like you're the one fan in the section that's cheering against the home team. I'm talking when you face injustice, right? What's going to be your response? And we say, well, it'll, it'll be love. Just, just wait for a while for some sort of test in a situation, like when someone cuts you off on the deer foot and you're trying to get home. Just watch your response to injustice there. How quickly you cry foul. Watch. For myself, I thought about this, and I was like, last weekend I watched one of the worst football games I've ever seen. And the team that I was cheering for clearly wasn't playing up to their potential. But how quick was I to jump up from my seat and scream at an official who I clearly thought was bringing injustice to my team? All that did is just reveal to me that my response isn't actually that godly. That there is work to do deep in my heart. That I need to hear this text and look at how Jesus responded to me. Can you imagine if that's how Jesus would have responded to your sin? If God would have sent him to our world as a missionary and the moment someone sinned against him, he jumped up, screamed, God, look at these guys. Are you kidding me? I have to save these guys? But he didn't. In fact, you, you, you only see him respond to kind of abrasiveness, but you never see him respond to sinners like that. And so this is what Peter says. When injustice happens, and it's likely going to happen, and actually in our culture, I think we're very similar to Peter's culture in that we're going to live as exiles more and more in our culture. What I mean by that is I don't think Christians or churches have any place of privilege in our society anymore. And so we're going to have to function like exiles. And continually we're going to have to respond to injustice like Jesus or we will lose the battle for our country. It is the word. We don't think that our response to injustice matters, but it does. Because Jesus' response to injustice mattered. Did you know that he was not put on the cross for a crime he committed? He was put on the cross for a crime he did not commit. He had people rail at him, tell lies about him, use his words, misquote him, spit in his face, disrespect him. Things that you wouldn't even do to a normal human being. In fact, the very act of hanging someone on the cross was actually reserved for criminals of the worst kind. That, that, kind of, that, that kind of punishment was kind of saved for, like in our society, you would save that for the uh, sexual predator pedophile. Right? The embarrassing crimes. You'd save that punishment for that. That's how our Savior was punished. And yet he said, this is... This is the process by which the Lord, the Father, has for me and us. And I will do it. And so what Peter is saying then is, instead of looking at things that are unfair, look at them as opportunities. I know, crazy, right? Someone cuts you off in traffic, look at that as opportunity rather than as injustice. Some of you are like, 
Okay, that's taking it a bit too far. No, it's not. Because that's how every piece of suffering should be viewed as, as an opportunity to point back to the gospel. Because eventually, people, when we respond like this, when we respond to injustices, when we, re- we respond to being treated poorly with an opportunity for the gospel, eventually people ask, Do you really believe that stuff, don't you? What, what would cause you to respond that way? And so that's why Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't, don't, don't think about them. Think about opportunity to talk about Jesus. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. Again, to, to go back to Tim Keller, we, um, this book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I highly recommend it. I'm not even finished it yet. But he, he, he starts already, he starts to talk about just developing this idea that doesn't just make sense of suffering, but actually understands the purpose of suffering. Sometimes we just need to hear that. That your suffering is not something you simply have to make sense of. It's actually something you can use. It's actually something that God provides for you. Now, right away, I'm sure some of you are asking, yeah, but you don't know my suffering. Of course I don't. I don't know how deep your suffering goes. But as the longer we pastor this church, the more we are beginning to see that there are some people right amongst you that have some very horrible stories of some very terrible injustice. There have been abortions. There have been rapes. There has been terrible neglect by fathers. There has been extreme abuse. There has been all kinds of chemical, um, chemical oppression. And what Peter is saying is don't use these things just to play the victim card. Use them to understand the suffering of Jesus Christ Amen. for you. I do not say that lightly, friends. I am not saying that glossing over any of your pain. I'm saying I could only say that because I know that Jesus did that. And that's exactly how he didn't just make sense of suffering. He used the form of suffering to provide salvation to us. So when injustice comes, the question will be for all of us, how will you respond I would say you can only respond like Jesus responds when you understand what Jesus has done for you. So let me go over again. Some of you have heard this. If you've been here since the beginning, you hear this all the time. Elroy is right. We are about Jesus Christ here. This is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus is God. Somehow he devised a plan whereas he would come as God to this earth, be born in such a humble way. In a month's time, we'll study this in depth, right? This is Christmas time. He was born into a human family. Now, why God would do that, there's only one reason. It's to come in the humblest way possible. He could have magically come. He could have appeared on the scene. He decided not to. He decided to come as a child, a helpless child. For those of you who have babies you understand how helpless children are, right? They can't even hold up their heads. Can you imagine? Jesus couldn't hold up his head. That's how humbly he came. If you don't believe me, watch some of the babies after here. They're like... That's a humble God. The creator of the universe did not have a strong enough neck for a season. So that he could grow up like you, instead of sinning like you, not sin, completing a perfect sacrifice, and then at the end of his life, heal people, preach repentance, and suffer a horrible death in your place. And then simply said, friends, if you believe that I am God, you can have 
everything that I've earned for you. It doesn't sound right, does it? It sounds unfair. Oh, good word. Unfair. Because that's exactly the word that you and I use when something bad happens to us. That's not fair. Well, I'll tell you what's really not fair is what Jesus did. That's not fair. And that's why we don't call it urban fair church. We call it urban grace church. Because grace is a gift. Free. You can't earn it. And you'll find this out at Christmas time, whether you believe that gifts are really gifts. Right? Some of you, you get gifts and you think it's payment. Because all you can think about is, my goodness, I have to get them a gift of equal value. That's a transaction. You know, in our, in our family, we're wrestling through this. We're, we're like, we, we, you know, all this idea of really having to, to give gifts and, and we should just give them more freely. What happened that Christmas became a bunch of transactions? Christmas should be a great time to express grace. You should find someone who you don't really know that well and give them a big gift and just watch their response. They hardly know what to do about it. They ask, why did you do this? You say, guess what? It's kind of what Jesus is about. You see how you can use injustice, you can use unfairness actually as an opportunity to proclaim. But you know what you have to do? You have to decide that you are going to respond like Jesus. You have to look at what Jesus has done to really get this. Because when you do, it will make sense. And so the question for all of us, will we respond like Jesus? Thirdly, and I close with this. Committed to Jesus. Again, Peter actually in his second letter, Second Peter says that Paul has got written some things that are really hard to understand. I'm sure Paul, Peter, I think was written after a lot of the, the, the stuff that was written by Paul in Scripture. I'm sure Paul was like, oh, too bad you couldn't have my letters because I said the same thing about you, Peter. Some of the stuff you wrote was hard to understand. This isn't really about two guys arguing in Scripture, but... It is funny that Peter says, you know that other writer? He writes some things that are very hard to understand. And I would say, Peter, you've written some things that are very, very hard to understand. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that it's not valuable for us, and it doesn't mean we can't understand what it is. It just might take some time. And so let me not read through it and try and unpack everything because it's, it's, it's kind of, actually, he writes a lot like me. It's like he had ADD and was just like, and here, and then, oh, and then here, and then, oh, and then what about this? And then what about this? What Peter is trying to say at the very end is what, this is, what Jesus has accomplished is what he wants to accomplish through you. What he used to accomplish is exactly how he's going to accomplish it through you. And he actually uses the context of baptism to do it at the very end. Almost as a kind of an asterisk to it. And so many of the commentators did not really key in on the, the subject of baptism, but we have the opportunity. We think Jesus is calling us to do this more regularly, so we're, we're going to use that opportunity to, to give you that opportunity. But this is the, this is the story of, of, of Peter saying, well, you know how it was in the time of Noah? Who's heard of the story of Noah and the big ark? I think it's actually coming out on big screen. That'll be interesting. Um, but th- this idea of Noah and the ark is, is a story of one person being obedient and building a large boat. As an act of obedience. And so let me take you through this very quickly. Noah was in a time of severe exile. There was only one man who followed God at the time that we know of. That's recorded in the text. Everyone else was wiped out. Can you imagine? Like talk about injustice going against the flow. I mean, if you want a definition of hipster, go. You can't look further than Noah. This guy went against the flow. I mean, nobody else was building a boat at the time. He discovered that boat building thing first. By himself and his family, built a boat. It actually took him a long time, so he had to commit to it. So are the believers in Peter's time in a time of exile. 
They are not the cultural norm. They are going against the grain. They are obeying Jesus in their marriages, in the way they deal with civic authority. They're going against the flow. Noah did the righteous thing in the middle of an unrighteous world. That's exactly what Peter is calling his friends in Asia to do as well. He's calling them to live and do the righteous thing in the middle of an unrighteous world. Noah spoke boldly and courageously to a people that ultimately wouldn't listen. So he preached. Like this is what's crazy is that he's like the prototypical blue-collar carpenter preacher. Kind of like Jesus in some ways. That's why I think there's a likeness to Jesus. is because Jesus was actually a construction worker that doubled as the Savior of the world. And so as Noah's building the boat, what he is doing is preaching and he's also proclaiming, repent, turn from your ways. I'm building a huge boat. There's going to be room on this boat. And we'll build it bigger if we need to. Peter is asking the Christians to speak boldly and courageously about the gospel in their lives, what Jesus has done. He's calling them to act it out. He's calling them to live it out. He's calling them to talk about it. I would say, I started saying recently that, you know, when it comes to sharing the gospel, some people are like, well, should I do it, you know, kind of through friendship or should I do it through kind of like cold calling? So should I, should I just speak the gospel to, to uh, people that I don't know very well and don't have a friendship with or should I concentrate on the people that I do know well and then I have, you know, a long friendship with and I say, um, you can... You can do it either way, but both ways you have to use words. Some of us are more bent towards one way or the other. I would say what you need to really hear is that both ways require you to open your mouth and talk about Jesus. So you've got to do it. The gospel is news. It's not advice. It's not an activity. It has to be proclaimed. That's why we do it week in, week out here at Urban Grace. So hopefully over time, you just get the gospel so well, you can start doing this yourself. That's the expectation. Noah understood that God's impending judgment was on its way. He was building the boat, but he said, there is going to be a time when you no longer have the opportunity to repent and turn from your sin. And Peter was encouraging his friends to do the same. Preach and remind the people there is coming a time when you won't get preached at anymore. See how similar these situations are between Noah and Peter's time? In the unseen world of Noah's time, Jesus used the, uh, preached the opportunity to be saved from judgment through Noah. And in Peter's time, he's using these believers who he's never even met to preach about himself. Because that's what Jesus uses. He uses people to preach. He doesn't use programs. He uses people in programs. He doesn't use church buildings. He uses people in church buildings. He uses personal relationships. Like I said, it doesn't matter how you share your faith, but you're going to have to open your mouth to do it. And then you're going to have to live in such a way that people say, what do you believe? God did not judge the people of immediately in the time of Noah. I love this about God. He is not quick to anger. Some of us are quick to anger. I know I am. I know I think I have a long fuse until I... Again, till I watch sports. Then I have the shortest fuse I know of. God's not like that. He is not quick to anger. He will put up with all kinds of stuff from you. But someone says, well, well, how do you know when he's had enough? I don't know. Don't find out. Don't find out. That's what we have today. You do not know what the next week is leads you to. You do not know where you will be in one week. You can say, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be there. But some of you are young enough and smart enough to know that's not actually true. I could lose my job this week. I could lose my family this week. I could lose my friends this week. I could lose my money this week. 
Because you don't know. And that's why there is a season that runs out. Just like in Noah's time. So Peter says, preach it. Because you don't know when that time is. In the end, Noah and his family were saved. Escaping the judgment through water. This is kind of weird because for the longest time, and in fact, that actually is, is, is the example, is, is water in the Old Testament always represents death. That's why in the story, story of Jonah and the big fish, when the sailors find out that Jonah is running from God, they don't kill him, they just throw him overboard. They put him in the water. That's an act of judgment because the water will take care of it. And here Peter is saying, actually, water is actually going to be the very way in which the people were saved. Noah's time was saved. And he says baptism now kind of corresponds to this. And that this water is not an act of judgment. It's actually one of the, the visible expressions of the way in which you were saved. And so let me finish off by saying this. How, knowing this about the gospel, knowing this about Jesus, how will you respond? Will you respond like Noah? Take God for what He is. Understand that He has a time and a season for you that honestly is going to run out. He's called you repentance. Some of you are just waiting for more information. I don't think it's information. I think it's faith. And so he says, baptism is, now saves you, not the external thing. Don't get, don't get this idea that you're not a Christian until you touch this water. There's nothing holy about this water. If you were here at 930, you would see that. There's nothing holy about this tank. I know it's not pretty, but I kind of like that it's not pretty. It's a horse trough. But it's water that represents, in, in many ways for us, a death. And this, it's kind of perfect because it's almost coffin-like. It represents a grave because this is what Peter says. When you believe in Jesus Christ, what you are doing is you are dying to yourself. That's why you go down into the water. And then if you're a good pastor or you have help, you bring that person up out symbolizing what? The resurrection that you will experience through Jesus Christ. He says that act doesn't save you. But your appeal to God through that act does. So we're not simply talking about doing this externally. We're talking about, has this happened internally in your life? Have you given all of your sin to Jesus? Have you given all of your mission to Jesus? Have you given all of your life? Not just the good parts. Not the parts that you're proud of, but everything to Jesus and said, you can have it all. You can kill it all. I will rise again in you. If you can say that, you are a candidate for baptism. I describe it like this. We do, we do the, in, the, in the big, we do these, uh, the Lord's table and we do baptism. And we haven't done baptism as regularly as I think we should have. But if you haven't been baptized and you have the conviction that you can say, honestly, I believe that. And I would take communion. I would say, this is the marriage ceremony and this is the anniversary. That's how I describe it. Some, some water's running over here at some point. If you believe that, friends, I would say this. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, then this is a sort of test that says, put your life where your mouth is. Put your life where your mouth is. If you believe this with your mouth, get in the tub, get dunked, and proclaim it to your church and your world. Again, this is not pressure. Seriously, it's not pressure. You know how much it's not pressure? We're going to do it next week too. So if you say, hey, I want a week to think about this. We say, come back next week. The water will still be the same temperature. Because we'll dump it and fill it again for you. But we also did not want to pass up the moment when the Holy Spirit may very well be convicting you to say, yes, I would proclaim that with my life. I want to do that. And we're going to sing some songs, and all I would ask is, would you come up and talk to me if that's the case? Would you come up and talk to me, and I will ask you three questions. 
Do you believe that Jesus is God? If you answer yes, we continue. Do you believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? If you say yes, we continue. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ, God, is that Savior? If you say yes, I say, then let's get wet. It's that simple. Some of us have been told wrongly that this is for mature Christians. No, this is one of the ways in which you start your Christian life. Did you know that in the, in the scriptures there is no category for the unbaptized Christian? There isn't. Because that was very common. Hey, when you believe this, you just publicly stated this. And so this is, yes, this is a test. It's a test for some of us. Some of you have been baptized. You're celebrating. You're saying good word. You're saying all that kind of stuff. And I would say, see, now celebrate your anniversary. That's what this is. This is an opportunity for you to say, isn't it good what Jesus has done for me? This is why we don't want people who don't believe it to come up, because in in some ways it's like lying about what you believe. By partaking in this and not believing, you are saying, I am pretending like I believe it, but I don't. And so I would say, if that is you, friends, we have both here this morning for you. Believe, be baptized, then partake. We've made it as simple as we possibly can. At the back, there are some sweatsuits. I was going to say jumpsuits, but we're not a prison, so it's sweatsuits or like baggy clothes. They're black, ladies, don't worry. They're not pretty. I know, I get it. So if you feel like this is what Jesus is calling to, go back, uh, grab the size that is remotely close to yours, and get baptized in that, and then we've got some towels. Um, And the rest of us, let's celebrate this. Because even if we're not getting baptized, even if no one gets in the tank, isn't Jesus good? Isn't he good? Jesus destroyed the old sacrificial system that literally said, you have to kill an animal in order for you to get right with me. And then next year, you've got to do it again. And then next year, you've got to do it again. Jesus said, believe in me. And my sacrifice will eliminate everything once and for all. And so, Julie and friends, why don't you come and lead us?